0: Mark O'Connor is well-known to WDAV listeners as a preeminent American fiddler and violinist whose music gets played often on our station. Mark's music and career straddle genres. He began as a classical guitar student and then became champion old time and Texas fiddler, became a champion old time and Texas fiddler at a young age. And then he went on to have success in the country music world and the classical music world as both a performer and composer. He has also had plenty of success performing jazz. Mark O'Connor has won three Grammys and seven Country Music Association awards, and over the years he's played with everyone from Roy Acuff to Yo-Yo Ma. He has a new memoir out, it's called Crossing Bridges, My Journey from Child Prodigy to Fiddler Who Dared the World, and he's touring the country performing a series of book launch concerts. One of them is taking place in Charlotte at the Booth Theater on March fifth, Mark O'Connor joins us today to talk about his book and career. And Mark, I'm so glad to to have you on Piedmont Arts. Great, thanks for having me, Rachel. Why don't we just sort of start, sort of at the beginning, and tell us a little bit about how you got started playing music at such an early age? You started with classical guitar when you were five, right? But you didn't come from a family of musicians. So how did you get started on this journey, and why?
1: Well, my mother was a uh, a music lover, and she uh, herself was a dancer. Uh, She danced ballroom for for a while, taught it. Uh, And then, um, but my family remained on hard times. We were a very poor family, but she always wanted to have uh, her kids take um, an instrument, music. And Andres Segovia was someone that she really admired, really the first internationally recognized classical guitarist and uh, she wanted me to do that so like right from the very beginning it was a rebellious pathway to music success you know just doing everything um, a little bit differently and 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 that was my bent from the very beginning and it was really set up through her yeah so it was classical guitar and then flamenco guitar and then folk music and Johnny Cash songs All by the time I was uh, eight and nine years old.
0: And then you, uh, you turned to the fiddle or the violin. Well, fiddle, I guess it was at that point, right? That's what you would be calling it.
1: Yeah, because my very first, um, my very first tune that I picked off, um, you know, the the record player, the LP um, on my own was country music. Um, It was the, the uh, Cajun fiddler, Doug Kershaw's song. Uh, Louisiana man and it was uh, Roy Acuff's Wabash Cannonball and then within a couple of weeks I started uh, having fiddle lessons in Seattle of all places I mean way far away from the cradle of this music which is uh, like right here in North Carolina um, where I live now Uh, but yeah born and raised in Seattle it was an unlikely situation but we were you know living through um, this music through the on, on the record player. It was a journey of discovery that my mother and I shared together.
0: Because she didn't really have much background in it either, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely none. And we didn't come from a family even of any music, uh, as far as we could trace, you know, hundreds of years of family tree history. And there's not another uh, instrumentalist in our line um, on either side, my mother and dad's side. So, which kind of you know breaks the convention of you know this kind of music being uh, first exposed through family life, uh, kind of born into it with the DNA, but that was thrown out the window in my case. Um, Also, my geography—I mean, just you know—in an unlikely place of Seattle, Washington, and all this started there. Uh, But I eventually made it, made my way down to the South, especially. I talk about in the memoir. Um, the summer of fiddling love when I was 12 and getting into um, this Southern regions of the United States and uh, seeing firsthand um, the culture of this folk music um, that was being played out uh, for centuries here. And um, so it was just really riveting and inspiring.
0: And that would have been 1974 or 75. Okay. Um, Yeah. The fact that you are from the Pacific Northwest, kind of had a lot of people flummoxed, didn't it? They totally didn't expect somebody with your talent and your ability so quickly to show up and and interpret this music. And you were winning contests or placing highly in contests really from the beginning. You did have the good fortune of uh, having a, a teacher um, named Benny Thomason, who had just, I guess. Uh, through fate, relocated to the Pacific Northwest. want to tell us a little bit about him.
1: Yeah, it was just an incredible opportunity um, at a a real early event that I was at, uh, still a beginner. Uh, There's this legendary fiddler, Benny Thomas, and we had seen him uh, perform just weeks before. And he spotted me, started talking to my mother about me, and he saw in me this kind of... uh, student potential that he wanted to work with and help shape and mold uh, into I guess his likeness really but uh, one of the things that he he did for me was really steep me in this his style that he created which is this you know it was like almost unknown genre of music called Texas old-time fiddling uh, but at the same time he planted those seeds of creativity where he was then pushing me by the time I was 12 to really come up with my own versions of this stuff. And, um, I would take it home like homework. And then we would work on it for hours back at the next lesson. And he would kind of, uh, go through and help my process about how I would, you know, arrange materials, folk music materials, his materials. And he always, um, he always claimed that I could make it better. And uh, while there was a a lot of, you know, a lot of time where I didn't believe that was the case, Um, he made me try. And so it was really, um, I wanted to write about that kind of mentoring um, that took place um, because it was really concentrated over a couple of year period of time, but it didn't, you know, go on forever. And I largely became self-taught most of my childhood, Uh, but I did have this incredible mentoring for a couple of years, and it really set me on my path.
0: Yeah, do you think you would have been able to achieve what you did without his uh, early instruction? The The whole idea of telling you to be creative, to improvise, that seems pretty important to what comes later.
1: Yeah, and I think he um, he was teaching a few other students at the time, but their lessons were completely different than mine. Um, so he saw this kind of uh, you know creativity and curiosity that I had as a young child and he really wanted to nurture that and my mother did too and uh, so I had it was a, a it was an unconventional prodigy that was being developed here because when you think of the traditional sense of child prodigy especially when it comes to violin um, and it's, it shows up mostly in classical music because the training regimen is so established. It goes back you know, centuries and, and you're working on the, you know, the war horses until those tiny hands are bleeding, you know, that kind of mentality here. I was doing it with folk music and American music styles um, where the authenticity of it and the roots and the heart and soul was um, ever present it wasn't about just uh, chops and playing the notes on a page or you know by rote it was about having something to say musically and how does a child come up with that you know like you know so i think i channeled my teacher benny thomason and his music so well at the beginning and that gave me the foundation um, i needed that foundation to to like leap from you know, I needed, I wanted to tell his story first before I had my own story to tell. And he made sure that I knew his story. Um, and I think that's what the mentoring was about. But the the beautiful part of this story that I really tried to, you know, um, write in the memoir is that he was really proud that I sounded very different than him in short order. I wasn't a clone of him. And matter of fact, some people, have had a hard time even when I was 13, wondering if I was his full-time student, um, because I already had my own personality and, and direction, which he nurtured, because he he knew that was how he responded to the music that he developed, and so he, he gave me the full course of it, you know, at, but at a very early age.
0: Yeah, and you write in the book that you wanted to sound like him, and so he would show you something, and you would play it like he would play it, and then he'd say, okay, you can do better than that, or you can do differently than that. It's just very interesting to me. He must have been a wise soul.
1: Yeah, he was even prophetic. He was, he was a, a wise man, and he was an angel too. And I, you know, I, I talk about the angels that, that came into my life to kind of rescue me. But ultimately, I had to figure out how to turn all the turmoil and dysfunction that I was experiencing at home, you know, a dying mother uh, from cancer, an alcoholic, abusive father, severe bullying at school. I was trying to figure out a way uh, through that. And part of, uh, part of my uh, journey was to uh, bring money home to the household, you know, when I could, you know, it started by playing um, on the on the street or in the doorway of a tavern to winning national championships. Uh, by the time I was 13, in the open divisions, where the big prize money was, there was some some little kids divisions just getting going, especially out west, but I talk about in my memoir that, you know, kids playing Fiddle music in the South was like, you know, unseen, unheard, and it, it was just not something that was happening. Isn't
0: that especially, interesting?
1: Yeah, especially on a on a a level that you could go toe to toe with the old timers, um, than the professionals. It was largely very amateur based. There was a lot of um, young people getting interested in folk music in the '70s, uh, the hippies, but a lot of them were learning the music in college. In their college years, they they weren't learning it when they were twelve, or eleven, or ten, or you know. Um, so, but I think you know I, a lot of the kids were exposed to instruments when they were young, but they weren't necessarily um, nurtured in the way that I was, where where they would just pick it up now and then. I was like really mentored. I was like you know training. I was learning five different instruments. Um, at age eleven, uh, and practicing all day um, through my own drive and my, my my personal drive, and I talk about it, that in the book. Um, part of it was um, to stay away from my my dad's labor sites, which right. his his work was very rough. Uh, he he worked after hours after his lumberyard job. He worked under old rotting houses repairing foundations in the dark under there in the, in the crawl spaces and he would describe them you know his jobs as working with the rats and the snakes down there <laughs> and I mean that sounded like no fun to me and of course if I was working with him after school every day I couldn't practice and get better at these instruments like I had the ability to my, my mother saw that but she also couldn't stop this process that was in place with my dad he was going to make me do it but i had to prove to him um even separate from my mother that i actually could make money doing what i was doing and i could bring money home so that's how i dealt with that um and uh, those championship wins saved me i mean it was a uh, it was it was it was a it was wonderful to get the trophy certainly but it was a it was a way for me to continue my music.
0: And speaking of your mother understanding um, where this could all go, talk a little bit about how she supported you. Um, you all bought a van, used, and you and your mom and your sister traveled around in that van. You want to tell us a little bit about that?
1: So that first tour, we had you know a broken down a station wagon. Prior to that. You know, there was literally holes in the the floorboard and that's not, that wasn't going to take us very far. So we convinced my dad after he saw that I won a big grand prize in the Seattle area, the very first Bluegrass Festival ever put on in the Northwest. I won the grand prize against all those hippies and old timers up there who were, you know, largely amateur, Um, but I was only 11 turning 12. And I won the grand prize, won um, first in guitar, second in banjo, and third in fiddle at that point. And that really impressed my dad. So he um, he figured that I could repeat that success. And so we got a hollowed out van uh, with no air conditioning. And he, he put some cabinets in there and we slept in there. And we took off for the East Coast, mom driving, my little sister tagging along and we just went from festival to contest, fiddle contest, guitar contest, anything that uh, we could find uh, on the road, on the roadmap. Um, and uh, eventually we ended up in Nashville, but I was having so much fun going to these festivals. Perfect place for kids, you know, to run around and play in the woods and then, you know, play some music. And uh but when we came to Nashville, it was a, it was a, not something that was high on my priority list because it just seemed like there wasn't a festival there or a, or a fiddle contest, you know, and I, I was getting used to that that summer.
0: But, but you didn't good, even want to go, right?
1: Yeah, I didn't even want to go. <laughs> um, I said, Mom, can't we go to another fiddle contest? You know, because I really, I liked performing um, my fiddle music. The The contest gave me a stage to perform i mean there's like there was not really any other way uh for a kid to perform this music you know other than a, in a tavern um without getting on one of these big you know contests i mean you know uh yeah there were there were festivals had started but i mean a little kid playing a festival set i mean that it seemed like a, a stretch and it was but i could get up there and play in the comp fiddle competition or the guitar competition and wow, that crowd, you know, they go, man, he has a chance to win it, you know. So when we showed up in Nashville, I played for uh, some of Roy Acuff's Smoky Mountain Boys in a in a club downtown Nashville. And they just like, um, you know, fell in love with me. And uh, I was 12. And then they they took me out to, to see Roy Acuff. And I played for him in his dressing room two nights later. That was uh, in July, 1974. And he was so taken with me, he put me on the Opry that night and the Grand Ole Opry. I had a solo spot uh, when he first asked me to play. I thought maybe he was going to ask me just to sit in with his group. And I had experience to some of that. I mean, I was I, I was ready to do something like that and maybe take a little ride on one of his songs. Um, uh, and uh, but no, it was a solo spot. He was going to he was he was going to give me the feature. And I ended up playing two pieces. And I'm going to return to uh, the Grand Ole Opry this week to reprise those those two tunes I first played 50 years ago um, at the Opry, Dusty Miller and Faded Love. And so really excited about that. And in, in this case, since Roy Acuff is long gone, Vince Gill is going to host my segment and introduce me. And he was somebody I met that first summer. Um, he's four years older, so I was 12 and he was 16. And he was getting going on his music, playing some guitar and singing. So, yeah, there was uh, there was a few other kids playing, um, mostly older teenagers uh, and very few, just a handful. And Vince was one of them. But uh, almost no, we didn't see another younger fiddler in the South all that summer um, at any of the contests, any of the festivals.
0: And I think the fact that your mom was willing to go with this is just great.
1: Yeah, I know. I mean, and bless her heart, I mean, she was struggling physically, you know, and I mean, she she wanted to give me everything she had. Uh and that's why it was so important for me to ultimately write this book because it was really about it's not just dedicated to her, but it really is her story.
0: Yeah, I was well. going to ask you what made you write the book.
1: It was the story of a a young boy and her and his mother. That relationship. And um, I wanted to talk about the, you know, the real human story, the the existence of of a struggle-filled life and how musical inspiration rescued my family out of this, out of the depths of abuse. And uh and music saved me, save, saved, saved my life. Um, I've always viewed music as a safe harbor. A way out an escape route. And I think um, I think our culture today could use more music um, out there. again, more more uh, kids playing instruments, participating in in um, the arts activities. And you know, because there's a lot of parents that don't appreciate the arts like even my poor parents did i mean they 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 were we were poor but they 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 were inspired by good performers and good music you know whether it was frank sinatra or or uh benny goodman or duke ellington or uh, black gospel singers or you know whatever that they they found my mother, especially, you know, curious about uh, Hispanic music. She loved the flamenco, loved Latin. They both loved Latin dancing. My, my mom and dad were ballroom dance teachers. And so you know, I had at least the arts to get me out of that neighborhood, to get me out of that household. My mom always said that uh, you might not make a lot of me- uh, money at music, but you'll get to see the world. And I just loved that idea, that I was able to see the world um, as a young person, travel all around. I played on six continents, and the experience of music became the uh, the idea, the the goal. Um, and uh, we were we were rich because we had music.
0: Do you think if you had not, um, you know, been growing up where you were? in a neighborhood that you describe as difficult in a school particularly middle school that you describe as difficult you would have focused in on music so much because you do talk about it being your exit plan yeah.
1: I mean I th- I think that um, it's very possible that um, I could have been on another path and I don't know where that could lead um, a good example of that is my sister. Um, we had some of the same experiences in our neighborhood, our household at school. And she was very smart, um, but she didn't go to college. She was never encouraged to go to college by anybody. And so she had you know regular jobs for a long time and then she returned to she returned to school at age 30 and went to UCLA, and uh, majored in in, uh, molecular biology, and she became, uh, you know, a valedictorian, gave the commencement speech at UCLA, and this was, like, you know, when she was, like, early 30s, and I was thinking, I look at that, and I go, you know, would I have been that lucky as Michelle, you know, like, I don't know. So I think that you, you bring up a good point. I was at the, it was in a circumstance where I was motivated to try. I, I, there was a sense of curiosity and creativity in my world. And I wanted to transport myself to a better place. And I think all those things lining up with a significant mentor, like I say, you know, it's just, it really only lasted a couple of years, but it was enough to set me, set me on my course. Um, and then I largely became self-taught at age 13. And then I had some, you know, some mentoring and lessons from Stefan Grapelli when I was 18 and toured with him. Great. Jazz. And we should
0: mention he was a, a jazz violinist.
1: Yeah. Great, great uh, tour with him. Um, I signed on an audition for his group as guitarist. Uh, uh, when I was 18 and it was on the very first rehearsal that he discovered I also played the violin And so he became my uh, you know mentor similar to Benny um but uh, in, in a more limited fashion. Um, but boy, I was soaking it up from him in, during those those times we were together And it was it was a great way to to finish my you know uh informal, education as a student of American music. Um, and that's what it was really about, was tapping into this place that I found as a child that was uh, mostly being enjoyed by adults that, that had uh, uh, you know years of experience before they, they got to a level um, where they could um, play at festivals or pr- perform in competitions and succeed.
0: Can you talk a little bit about um, how you ended up really working in the classical music world or collaborating with people like Yo-Yo Ma? And I, I did notice in your memoir you had kind of a negative experience with a, a violin teacher who was a classical um, teacher. And yet you've gone on to, you know, create works that are considered part of classical American music. Um, and get performed quite often.
1: Yeah, it's an, another unlikely journey. I think I approached classical music from a creative standpoint, and not from uh, a player standpoint. And uh, that was really a, a demarcation that I was that I was creating as a teenager. And um, I was ultimately prepared to bring the language of fiddle music into the classical music setting um and compose my way there rather than go through the the more normal channels that a violinist might where they would have to master each uh major violin concerto to have a chance to play with the symphony orchestra i was composing concertos that that uh conductors and and uh, you know, music directors were looking at and, uh, and approved, you know, they would look at the score. they would hear the audio if I had a chance to record it yet, but some of, some of the music was uh, not heard yet. They would just look at my score and and review it. And they, they said, this is worthy to put up on stage. Did Um, you have any
0: composition training?
1: Not specifically other than what I go into in the book, which is I really learned how to compose on a professional level from the the group leaders. I was working with uh, David Grisman, Quintet and Steve Morse and the Dregs. Uh, They were both very accomplished composers and they were leading ensembles based on their own music, instrumental music and to to play in their groups as a a teenager was great training. I not only saw their process up close, but I saw how much conviction they had at becoming um, a unique uh, composer. Um, They were were, um, determined to distinguish themselves from other composers. And I felt like that was, I was reading that. I mean, I I felt like I was the, I was an example of this same path. Um, But, you know, with my own take on it, you know, I go in detail about, um, you know, I'm literally really a student of theirs while I'm in their group. Um, So I not only had the two significant violin masters, Benny Thomason and Savita Grappelli, but I had these group leaders, David Grisman and Steve Morris schooling me on their music um, to the point where I was excelling at it the same way. I was, you know, as I was a star in their ensemble, uh, trading leads with them as a kid. And so um, it wasn't, um, you know, it took a few years, but I finally had the opportunity to try my hand at composing with uh, fiddling as a musical language in a classical music setting. It was for the Santa Fe Chamber Music Festival. I had done an improvised concert there of just music that I put together. And it was like kind of like a, it was an outside program. Uh, it was not on their main series, but it attracted a lot of attention, especially from their musician base. They all wanted to see what this guy from Nashville was up to on, on the fiddle. And that created a real kind of a conversation amongst the, the patrons of the, of the Santa Fe Chamber Music Festival and especially the directors. They challenged me. And I that's why I love the idea of commissioning because once again, the seeds were planted, but it really, it took someone like them to take a risk along with my own risk for saying, you know, can you set aside a lot of time to try this, you know? and I spent months composing my first string quartet, and I spent uh, three or four, uh, probably four months writing it, while I was really busy as a Nashville session player. I mean, I was writing this music in the middle of the night, <laughs> like in my off hours, but I I knew that I had some ears and uh, some some support there, and it made all the difference, you know, and uh and so most all of my classical uh, compositions were commissioned. And that, that really, you know, it, w- it was a collaborative um, uh, journey in that way is that I maybe had the musical talent to do something unique, but I needed at least someone to encourage me and to put it on stage. I couldn't do that part. Um, I certainly couldn't pay for that. I couldn't buy an orchestra for a night. with a a new idea I had, I mean, it's like, that would be, you know, um, that would be, you know, idiocy. You know, you would just see all your savings go out the window in one night. I mean, but it took patrons, it took sponsors, it took uh, these music directors and conductors to believe in this new idea that fiddle music could have a voice in an American classical music setting. Uh, You know, Some seeds were planted by Aaron Copeland because he used some folk music themes in some of his significant pieces. But he was still not using actual fiddling as a musical language to to create a new type of way that the music was going to be performed. And and that's something I I wanted to bring into the scene. And people like Yo-Yo Ma heard it and, and said, you know, I want to be a part of that. I want to learn what you're doing and I want to perform it, record it. And uh, he ended up, you know, loving pieces of mine like Appalachia Waltz.
0: Which we hear pretty often at WDAV and various recordings of it, actually. His, yours, yours and Maggie's. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I hadn't thought of it before, but uh, what you're describing reminds me a little bit of Gershwin bringing in you know, the early 20th century new jazz music, you're bringing in the old, <laughs> you know, American traditional folk uh, or folk traditions to classical music. And that's that's what sets it apart really from the European classical music. So, well, Mark, I really appreciate your time today and, and for spending time uh, talking to us about your memoir and your art, your career. Uh, for Piedmont Arts, it's it's been great.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Rachel. I really enjoyed it, and uh, looking forward to uh, our Crossing Bridges memoir release concert, March fifth, at Blumenthal at the Booth Theater. And we're doing these performances. Actually, we're adding a bunch of them all around the country, and so it's a really exciting time. Um, I you know when I first started working on this memoir, it was something that I. I needed to have done. Um, I had the time to do it during the pandemic. I wanted to do it for my mother, who passed away 40 years ago, but her legacy lives here, lives in my music, lives in her beautiful black and white photography, which is going to be a companion book, um, A Musical Childhood in Pictures. Um, and she pressed record um, on all those archival tapes. Um, that people will hear on early childhood recordings so yeah so this is a a big release for me Um, it was a story that was I was reluctant to tell and for a long time even repeat most of it because I just wanted to move on from being the child musician I was and get a life going get get an adult life (laughs) I was tired of being 12 years old you know even at uh, you know when you're 25 years old and you're trying to find yourself out there as a professional musician, and someone comes up to you, go, man, I remember you when you were 12, you were awful good at 12. And it's like, that's the last thing a a 20 or 30 year old wants to talk about is at 12, you know? So it took me this long to um, really get to it. And, um, and now I'm in a place where I was able to really understand that child again and speak for that that little young kid out of Seattle.
0: Well, thank you for sharing it. It's an interesting read and um you know, best of luck on the tour, which I assume is going to include you maybe sharing some of the book as well as performing.
1: Yeah. I'm going okay. to read some uh, excerpts, anecdotes and and uh take some questions, do some tunes from uh those early days that I talk about in the book and some new music too. Maggie O'Connor, my wife will join me and and we'll throw some new stuff in because you know the whole point of uh, this music journey is that it took me places, new places, and uh, so I want to uh, I want to feature a lot of old music, but a few new things as well.
0: Well, again, thanks so much. Been talking to Mark O'Connor, fiddler, composer, who has a new new memoir out called "Crossing Bridges: My Journey from Child Prodigy to Fiddler Who Dared the World," and again, he will be uh, performing a book launch concert at the Booth Theater at the Blumenthal, March 5th. For Piedmont Arts, I'm Rachel Stewart.